1: Nikki Pellegrino's readers tell her that if they can't go to Italy on holiday, reading one of her 11 novels, so full of friendship, laughter, beautiful Italian food and sunshine, is the next best thing. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today Nikki talks about her affinity for all things Italian. The sees the day experience that made her absolutely determined to write fiction and the foodie tour she's leading to Sicily in 2020. But before we talk to Nikki, just a reminder, you'll find the show notes for this Binge Reading episode on the website thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Nikki's website and books, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes but now here's Nikki. Hello there, Nikki, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Hi. Now, I always like to start with this once upon a time moment question. It's a little bit predictable, but everybody wants to know the answer to it. Was there some sort of epiphany you had when you decided, I've just got to write that book? And if so, what was the catalyst for it?
2: Well, I'd always wanted to write. Um, It was why I became a journalist, because I didn't think people like me could become novelists. So, you know, I just come from a very ordinary working class, Northern English background, and I didn't know any writers. So that's why I went into journalism. And I kept thinking, one day I'll write a book. And I had ideas. Ideas are the easy part. The hard part is finding the time and energy to sit down and write. So I kept putting it off. And then one day I was at work, I was the deputy editor on New Zealand Women's Weekly, and I got an email from a friend. In who worked at TVNZ to let me know that Angela Dordney, who was a very well-known New Zealand broadcaster at the time, had been diagnosed with a brain tumour and it was terminal. She was she was terminally ill. And for me, I didn't. She wasn't a close friend. I didn't know that well at that point. I'd interviewed her a few times, but it was just a real seize the day moment because I knew she was only in her late fifties, and it made me think you just don't know what's around the corner. So if there's something you're putting off that you really want to do. You should do it. And the thing I really wanted to do was write this novel that was in my head. So I actually went home from work that night and I started writing Delicious, my first book. But I, I kind of plunged into it. I didn't have a plot. I didn't have a character breakdown. I was working on this ancient computer that had been made before email was invented. You know, I was, it was all very ill-advised. And I, <laughs> I kept plugging away at it. I got a better computer. Kept plugging away evenings, weekends, holidays just writing this story, existing in my own world. In between, Angela Dordney asked me to ghostwrite her autobiography for her. And that was an amazing gift she gave me, really, because I didn't really know if I could write a book. But suddenly, I'd agreed to it. She was on limited time. I really couldn't waste time being insecure and having doubts. And I just had to get on with it. So so I finished that book, and it came out. and, And going back to work on my own novel... Seemed like such a luxury after doing this incredibly sad project with this woman who was deteriorating every time I saw her. So I went back into my own language, my own little world that I was inventing, my own characters, and suddenly I was like, "This is great!" And that was it, really. That was the start of it all. I was incredibly lucky that I got a publishing deal for that book. I, I'm not one of those authors that has rejected manuscripts or half-written manuscripts lying around. Everything I've ever kind of started, I've finished and it's got published, which I think is quite unusual.
1: I I think it is, yes, that's right. And you had a winning formula that that began right with that first book, Delicious, and I was very impressed at one of the reviews for Delicious because it's such a great little review in itself. It said that Delicious was full-bodied as a rich Italian red. It's a page-turner combining the mist- chances of Captain Corelli's mandolin with the foodie pleasures of chocolate. It just makes you want to go out and buy the book, doesn't it? (laughs) But you had Italy, friendship, passion and food all wrapped into your mix and you've stayed true to that formula.
2: I didn't know that I was going to stay true to that formula, though. When I sat out and wrote that book, it was just really because It came out of a lot of childhood memories of Italy. My father's Italian and I spent time there. I didn't realise that if you have a book that has a modicum of success, your publishers want more in the same vein. Because there's lots of authors like Rose Tremaine or Jane Smiley who write incredibly different kind of fiction. And I didn't kind of realise that that wasn't going to apply to me and that they would want my books to continue to be set in Italy and around friendship, family, food, love. So it wasn't that I thought I'd hit on a winning formula. It just kind of was a mistake, really. I fell into it.
1: Yes, and, and it is true that the more popular fiction, very much now anyway, that is the trend, that if you get something that sells well, they want you to do it again with, with just a few tweaks to make it different. But And the readers are looking for that too. The readers want the same experience, which is why I called this the joys of binge reading, because I think there has been a growth in that kind of readership that likes to find something they like and keep reading it.
2: Yeah, and I think that that's it. You you sort of know what you're going to get with me. You know, you'll get warm, maybe a little bit funny, uplifting. And so uh, to begin with, I was slightly like, oh, is that what I want to do? But actually now I feel like I am doing what I'm good at and what there is a need for in the world. You know, I love a rom-com or an uplifting novel or a movie, so it's quite nice that I get to write them as well.
1: Yes, totally. I mean, we're talking this week when that terrible tragedy happened in Christchurch I think we all need uplifting and actually I know the market research shows that more and more readers are looking for uplifting books.
2: I think like I on the weekend had to take a break from the news cycle and I watched Green Book which was a great film to watch because it was about racism but it was also about people being different and learning to love each other so it's just a really good film to watch and that made me feel better so I hope I can put something into the world that's helping other people feel a bit better.
1: Well, that's wonderful. Now, you, ha- you are now about to publish your 11th novel in another couple of weeks. It's called A Dream of Italy. Your 10th *A year at the Hotel Gondola was top of the local bestseller lists for 13 weeks, which is quite a wonderful um, little record to have. And I'm confident that A Dream of Italy may follow in its footsteps because it's got exactly the same kinds of things that would attract readers. Do you feel now that you have reached some sort of mountaintop?
2: No, I don't feel at all successful. It's funny, isn't it? I feel like, um, you know, I would like to be more successful internationally. I would like to write different things. I would love to write a movie script or a TV script or different forms of fiction. So I feel like I've got so much to achieve. I can see that I've achieved some things that I've set out to do, but I'm certainly not here sitting on my laurels thinking, go me, haven't I done well? And I look at, you know, um, Anthony McCartan, the New Zealand novelist who also wrote The Theory of Everything screenplay, and he's incredibly, incredibly good at turning his hand to lots of different things, so adaptable. I kind of think that's my definition of success for a writer, being able to do that, and I'm a long way from there. Yeah,
1: you could be Leanne Moriarty and have everything that you write snapped up by Nicole Kidman. That's a living the dream, isn't it? <laughs>
2: Oh, Nicole Kidman has not phoned me and neither has Reese Witherspoon. Oh <laughs> uh, dear.
1: Um, a lot of reviewers say that if they can't go to Italy on holiday themselves, that reading one of your books is the next be- best thing. And I wondered if you had a typical reader in mind when you wrote.
2: Not really. I think when I started writing, what I wanted to do was create the sort of books that I probably like to read most myself, which are books that... Take a bit of an escape from your everyday life. Take you to a place. Make you feel as if you're there. the characters are people that you know. So that was what I was trying to do and I've continued to try to do. Um, I often get men say to me, I really liked your book. I know I'm not supposed to and it's not for me. And I'm like, well, why isn't it for you? Because surely you're interested in human relationships and food and travel and family and all those things, too. So I think we tend to get a bit rigid about that sort of stuff. Um, And also, I really love it when I'm doing an event and a mother and a daughter will say that they shared my book, you know, one pass it on to the other. Um, and so to to know that it's appealing to different generations, because The Year at Hotel Gondola was very much a novel about being middle aged. So I was quite surprised when I met younger women who'd read it. I, I was worried that it wouldn't appeal to a younger age group, the main character is in her 50s or just turned 50. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I don't have one person in mind, really. I just feel that I write books, hopefully with quite wide appeal. And, um, I mean, certainly if you're looking for a murder or something gruesome, you're going to come away sadly disappointed.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, in the hotel gondola, although we've been talking about fun and food and passion and friendship, but you did have a slightly more, um, you know, serious undertone there, talking about women's ageing and whether it's normal to just accept that life is going to get less interesting as you grow older, and your your central character, Kat Blake, Black, wants to make sure that her life remains at least as interesting, if not more interesting, as she grows older. I wondered if you could. Just talk a little about the success of that book because it sounds as if it did ring bells with a lot of people
2: well it kind of came out of a lot of stuff that was going on my in my head at the time around turning 50 and i had read a couple of books that dealt with the whole sweep of the main character's life and the beginning of their life their youth was all about hope and dreams and excitement and adventure and the end of their life was always about regret and i started to feel like well is that how it has to be and you know does one end up in older age being a bit envious of the person one used to be or is it possible to keep having adventures maybe different sorts of adventures and keep having hopes and dreams and not you know be kind of wallowing in regret and i think cat black of a year at hotel gondola was was kind of me exploring that within a novel because she's so determined to continue having adventures she's horrified at the idea she's going to slow down she kind of goes a bit crazy and takes on a bit of a rash adventure in reaction heads off to Italy to be with this man she hardly knows um and, and maybe did strike a chord with women because i mean even younger women you know you're going to age at some point and there has been traditionally this idea that you're just meant to shuffle off into invisibility post-menopause and you know not not demand any attention and not expect to be relevant and maybe we're starting to kick against that i hope so because um i feel that you know We've got something to offer at any age, really, haven't we? And also we can continue having adventures. They might not be, I mean my knees are a bit jippy. I don't think my adventures are going to involve skiing down mountain tops. <laughs> but I'd like to think I continue I can continue to have them. So maybe that struck a chord with readers a little bit, although I think so I mean my mother, who is 82, when I told her I was making the main character 50, she went oh no make her 49. 50 50's too old. And I went, Mum, you're 82. How can, you, how can you think 50's too old? So I wonder if, if some people might have been a bit put off by that older character. I don't know. No one said that to me, only my mother.
1: No, well, it sounds from your sounds as if not too many people were Um, You've got that real affinity for Italy because your dad, as you've mentioned, was Italian and you spent many childhood holidays there. But I noticed that in a Lister article that you did a while back that you said that as a kid, you quite often found those holidays boring. So I wondered when the Italian magic kicked in for you.
2: Well, my dad comes from a place in Campania. So it's near Naples and it's not very pretty. It's not the beautiful side of Italy. And that's where we spent our holidays as kids. We used to drive there from the North of England, sometimes crashing into things along the way because my father is a typical Italian driver. (laughs) We'd stay with family, we'd sleep on their floors or on little trestle beds. You know, it wasn't the glamour of Italy at all. And Neapolitans speak a dialect, so um, my Italian isn't very good, but my Neapolitan is pretty much non-existent. So it it was difficult to communicate with all my cousins and aunts, and there was just a lot of sitting around. Yeah, um, yeah. My brother, Vincenzo, he's an actor now, so he's much more outgoing than me. And he would—he didn't really need a language to communicate with people, whereas I was a bit timid. And I think I just sat back and observed, which is probably quite a good thing for a writer. You know, I watch stuff. Um, and then it was later on, really, once I hit my 20s and I started, I went to Venice and Florence and Siena and all these other places. I spent time in Rome and I got to see more of Italy than just this not particularly nice southern Italian town where my father, my father's family are. And that's when I started to really fall in love with the country. And I think I was always a bit in love with, you know, there's such – I mean, they can be a bit crazy, the Neapolitans. There's a lot of shouting and yelling, but there's also a lot of loving and amazing food, and family is so important, and people are constantly coming together. And I have an aunt, she's still around, Pepina, it, it wouldn't matter if five people or 50 people turned up at her house she would somehow feed them all still in her seventies she would you know race around in fact she's just she's recently opened a restaurant in her home now she's feeding all her neighbors as well <laughs> they're just eccentric unusual colorful lively people and i think i always knew that as a kid but as i got older i began to maybe appreciate a bit more How special that is. That What an interesting race they are. And there's infuriating things about them as well. You know, there's a lot more corruption there. Italians are very resistant to change. Italians are always right about everything. (laughs) 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 But they're also a lot of fun. Yeah.
1: Look, I have sometimes asked people where they take their readers if they were organising some sort of magical mystery tour around their books. But you're about to do that exact thing. Next year, you're taking a foodie tour to Italy. It's promoted on your website at the moment for those who might be interested. I'm just wondered: is this the first time that you've done this? And what are you planning for your people?
2: Well, it is the first time, and it was sparked because I kept getting emails from readers saying, I was so inspired by your books, I went to Italy and I went to some of the places you featured, and I must have been feeling a bit sorry for myself because I was stuck at home writing, and I thought, why aren't I going with them? Why are they going with me? (laughs) <laughs> and then I thought, oh actually I could do a tour and um Peter Matthias is a friend of mine and she is very successful. She runs tours all over the place. So I had a chat to her and got some advice and I'm just in the process of trying to put a tour together for next year to Sicily, which is where one of my books was set, called The Food of Love Cookery School. Because for that book, I actually went on a food holiday, and it was um, at, a, at a cooking school called Love Sicily, and the woman that runs it, Katia Amore, is still doing it. She still gets people who've read the book going on it. So I thought, wouldn't it be great to work in with her a little bit, and go to some of the places featured in the book, but then also some other places too. So that's what I'm hoping to do. It's just a matter of organising it. And I thought I'd give myself a good amount of time um, just to kind of get everything sorted because, you know, I've never done anything like this before. I'm quite an organised person in general, but this is something new. So, yeah, it'd be exciting if it all comes off.
1: And what kind of numbers are you hoping to
2: do Small, like, you know, sort of 12 yeah. people. I want it to be... Yeah. The- Yeah, I want it to be a real sort of culinary adventure and a little bit of history. Sicily is a fantastic place. They do the best desserts in Sicily. That's where they do the cannoli, which are the little crisp pastries stuffed with ricotta and pistachio. And yeah, I think some of the best food, certainly the best southern Italian food is to be found in Sicily. So I'm super keen to go back there myself. (laughs)
1: That's lovely. Look, turning to your wider career, if there is one thing you've done more than any other that would explain your success, what do you think it was or would be?
2: Oh, well, as I said, I don't feel very successful. But I think probably the thing is my doggedness, that I just keep plugging away at things because I never. Self doubt is a really major thing, I think, for any writer. So I never embark on a new book and think, I'm going to be able to do this. I'm always concerned that I'm not really good enough, that it's not good enough, that I don't really know what the characters are going to be doing and where they're going to be doing, because I'm not great, the greatest planner in the world. So, but but what I'm good at is just carrying on and finishing things. I think that's probably my superpower. I can't bear, sometimes people will say to me, oh, I've got three unfinished novels and I want to finish them for them. I can't bear all that potential (laughs) going to waste so i think that's honestly it and you know elizabeth gilbert the eat pray love writer she wrote a book about creativity called big magic that i'm always quoting because she said some fantastically practical stuff and one of the things she says is just show up and do the work and i think that's the Mm. other thing ideas are the easy bit sitting down on your own going into your head and trying to produce the story day after day and getting through the bits where you become stuck because you're always going to become stuck somewhere. And I don't call that writer's block. I don't think it is. I just think it's just a little kind of creativity hiccup. Yeah. You just have to keep going and get through it. It's like having a relationship. Sometimes it goes well. Sometimes it doesn't go so well. But if you stick, you know, if you stick with it, yeah. usually yeah. it's okay. Yeah. So, yeah, that's probably all, really. I don't think – I think there's a lot of brilliant writers out there. There's a lot of great storytellers. There's lots of great books. You know, I don't think that I am special in any way except that, I'm so determined that I'm going to get it done. That often makes it quite hard for me to start a project, though, because once I start, I know I've got to do it. So I, I am a procrastinator. I'll be all like, next month I'm going to get into writing this book.
1: <laughs> so generally, you, you do one a year. You have been doing one a year, is
2: that? Yeah, a dream of Italy took me a year. Um, Gondola took a bit longer, and I think that's just because it was so much about the thoughts in my head. And, and I yes. needed to process that. Yeah. Where a dream, whereas a dream of Italy is really other people's stories. None of the people in the book are even remotely me. There's, a, you know, a gay couple, a millennial couple, and there is a, an older middle-aged lady. But she's had a divorce, and I divorced. Yes. So yes. in yes. so yes. in some ways, it was the, the challenge of this book was walking in other people's shoes. Uh, didn't yes. take yes. quite so much thinking.
1: Yeah. You're still working as a journalist and your career in journalism has had the distinction of, you were editor of the New Zealand Woman's Weekly in the end. You mentioned when you started your fiction, you were deputy editor. And that's quite a big deal in New Zealand. The Woman's Weekly has been a foremost woman's magazine here um, over the years. What made you decide to ditch that really top job in journalism to write full time? My
2: husband said he'd divorce me if I didn't. He basically, because I was so stressed trying to edit the Woman's Weekly and write my second novel, and I had a contract for the second novel and a deadline, and I was just a nightmare to live with, and he said, you have to choose one or the other, so I just thought, well, okay. I, I know I've had this career in journalism I really want to explore writing so I started to freelance it was really hard though I mean it's a hard thing to give up a good job and a salary and you know all those kinds of things mm. but I could see that I had this opportunity and I kind of thought well somebody will probably give me a job in journalism if it all turns to custard so I'm going to give it a go and I haven't regretted it. I do do a lot of freelancing for lots of different titles, you know, lots of magazines. It's still the way I really earn my living. It's how I support myself as a writer because it's hard to make a living as a full-time as a writer. But it's a, actually, apart from the lack of time and energy and the days when I just want to lie very still because I've got too much on and I can't face doing any of it, it's a great mix, you know. It's great to sometimes get to tell other people's stories. And sometimes mm-hmm. I will do a story... That will really inspire me, like I did do a couple of cover stories for the listener about aging and about people who age well. And that, I think, all kind of came into Hotel Gondola and One Summer in Venice and the character of Coco, who's quite a feisty older woman. So sometimes it does feed in and inspire me. Sometimes I write about gut health and that's difficult to incorporate into a book. But yeah.
1: Yes. Well, one of the, the um, acknowledgements that you've had just recently is that you've been invited to take part in the New Zealand Writers and Readers Week coming up in May, and that's quite a cuckoo for somebody who's regarded as a, quote, popular writer because that um, particular forum does lean towards the literary end of the publishing spectrum. I wondered if you saw that as some sort of acceptance maybe, in quotes, of of women's fiction, once again, in quotes, and if you have any thoughts about where your work would fit into some of these, you know, labels like women's fiction or chick lit or whatever, do you have any thoughts about that?
2: I don't like chick lit because I'm really not a chick at this point. I'm more of an old hen. <laughs> and I think it's a really patronising way to describe fiction written by women. You know, mm-hmm. I've seen a Jodie Pico novel that was about a Nazi war criminal i saw that described as chicklet well if you thought you were going to get sex and shopping you'd have got a little bit of a fright from that um so i'm generally not but, I don't, but there isn't a really great way to describe it i recently there's a new phrase come up which is uplit as in uplifting oh yes yeah and because I, yeah. I think publishers have identified that we all feel a bit um, ground down and stressed and we we're looking for more uplifting content you know from books yes tv shows and so I quite like Uplit um I do I feel like I have done the right Auckland Writers Festival a couple of times before actually oh, have
1: you yes I don't sorry I didn't realize that yeah you're
2: right it is on you I mean this year seems an especially literary and intellectual lineup and I do feel a little bit like oh and there's me uh, <laughs> <laughs> with my rom-com oh well so yeah I don't know I I, I think I don't know that we need to be accepted writers of popular fiction need to be accepted by the, the literary world. We're accepted by the hundreds of thousands of people that write, like reading popular fiction. But yes. I think there maybe needs to be an, an acceptance that writing a book that is easy to read is difficult. You know, a book that's unputdownable and flowy and, say, someone like Marion Keys, who gets described as chick her books are brilliantly constructed, brilliantly written. Her characters are great. She is very, very good at it. That is not an easy thing to write. And if I were to sit down and try and write a Marion Keys book, it would go quite badly wrong, I think. So I think maybe there needs to be more acceptance from the literary world that what we're doing isn't in some way inferior. It's just different. And I think New Zealand has had a very strong tr- tradition of literary writing. And we're just starting to get a stronger tradition of more commercial fiction. You know, crime. There's so many great cr- New Zealand crime writers now, and that's partly thanks to a guy called Craig Sisterson who um, had a Kiwi crime blog and he he set up the Dame Nioh Marsh Awards. So he's really backed Kiwi crime writers. And there's some fantastic new writers of contemporary women's fiction like Catherine Robertson and Danielle Hawkins and Catherine Bonetto. I know I just read a new um, new one called Not Bad People by a writer called Brandy Scott and just loads Nikki crutchley who writes crime so i feel like this is i feel quite excited i feel like that all these great new writers are coming through and i just hope people discover them because i think there there has been a tradition in new zealand of people picking up novels by international writers before they do kiwi ones and there's such great stories being written by kiwi writers just right at the moment that um it will be a shame to miss out on them so Yeah, Yeah, so all of those names that I said, I encourage people to go and seek out their books because they're really great.
1: Look, that's lovely, and it moves us quite nicely onto the last section of the show, which is talking about your own reading habits and in the context of this idea of binge reading. I wonder if you were a binge reader at any stage of your life. You might not have much time for it now, but what kinds of things do you like to binge read or have read in the past?
2: So when I was a kid, books were my friend, because I am an unusually tall person and I have been unusually tall from quite a young age. And I didn't really like going to parties and I was very sort of, you know, crippled by shyness. So I binge read like a crazy thing. All of those, you know, childhood books. And I still read a novel a week. My favourite, favourite authors would be, there's a British author called Diane Setterfield. She wrote a book called The Thirteenth Tale a few years ago, and she's just released one called Once Upon a River. And I love her writing. It's quite gothic and whimsical, and it's just really beautiful. And I also really love the British author Rose Tremaine, who writes quite diverse novels. Some of them are historical. Some of them are contemporary. So, but honestly, I read pretty widely. The only things I can't stand is, I hate books where awful things happen to women. You know, Mm -hmm. terrible. I just can't really deal with a lot of murder and bleakness and darkness at the moment. So um, I tend to put books down like that. And I hate really flowery writing where there's too many words. So (laughs) I, I really quite like that purred down style. Um, that gets everything across evocatively, but without kind of cramming in too much purple prose. Yes, yes.
1: We're coming to the end now. Circling back from the beginning of your career as as a fiction writer, at this stage, if you were doing it all over again, what, if anything, would you change?
2: Oh, I don't know. Um, I think... I might break out and do something a bit different earlier. I mean, to me, all the books are different. They're within the same framework of Italy Family Food, but each one I've been trying to do something different. But I think I might have pushed that a little harder. So the book I'm working on at the moment, I can't kind of talk about what it's about, but it definitely has quite a different feel it's a different tone it's a book that's requiring an awful lot of research and is much more challenging for me and I kind of feel like oh I've sort of left it to my mid-50s to to strike out and try something different maybe I should have done it in my mid-40s <laughs> um because I do feel there's so much left to achieve and try and you know a limit to my time and energy so that would probably be the only thing I would change I might maybe take a bit more time you know publishers love a book a year but that, yes. that that can get quite stressful and means you never really take a proper holiday you've always got your laptop and you're always desperately writing and yes. so I kind of look back on the last few years as a, a bit of a blur and <laughs> and sometimes you know I kind of barely remember the books because I feel like what happened in that one oh look <laughs> <laughs> but I wouldn't change very much I think I've had extraordinary fortunate I've got fantastic publishers um a great agent I've been really looked after you know through my writing career and it is challenging and difficult and there are ups and downs to it so it's so important to have those people in the background
1: yeah um you mentioned this intriguing new development can you even give us a hint of what genre it is
2: I think it's still I think all the things people like from my books will be in there but there's something more to it. There's another element okay.
1: yeah. Yeah. I get
2: that isn't normally there.
1: And are you still continuing with the others alongside it? So tell me, for your next 12 months, what, what is your main focus going to be?
2: Oh, well, I've got to finish this book I'm working on. Um, then I would like to – I do feel this urge to be, write rom-coms at the moment. I, I would like to write something really funny. I don't know how funny I am. That would be <laughs> that would be the problem. <laughs> and also A Dream of Italy, potentially there could be a sequel to that. Um, I haven't decided. I've never done a proper sequel before, but sometimes I will set novels in the same location or I will have the same characters coming in and out. So it doesn't really matter if you've read or if you remember the previous book, but you might recognise people. So potentially I will set another book in the same place but with different characters because I've fallen in love a little bit with this mountain town that I've made up in my head called Montanello so it might be quite nice to go back there for another story but I don't know I've got lots of ideas I've got ideas for a New Zealand historical novel you know just ideas are everywhere it's just yes it's just the um finding the time to actually write them can be a bit of a challenge
1: now look where can readers find you online? And do you enjoy interacting with your readers? Do you do very much of that?
2: Yeah, I'm on loads of social media. So I've got a Facebook page, Instagram, Twitter, and I've got a website, dub dub com, which I've just had all kind of fancied up. I, had, I'd, I think I've had it since the internet was invented and it was looking a bit tired. So I've just got a new website and actually I can be emailed from that too. So I'm extremely contactable and I do love hearing... Um, often you'll get an email just on one of those days when you're thinking, I can't do this. Why am I here? And then you'll get an email from a reader saying, I loved your book, and you know, helped me through a really tricky week at work. And it took me to Italy, and it was a real fabulous escape. And that's always great because it makes me think, Oh yeah, that's right. That's my job. I'll get back into that now.
1: And you you do still do some of the traditional book tour thing for your launches, don't you? I see that for a Dream of Italy, you're you're going down the length of the country and having meetings and libraries and things
2: i'm not doing so much this time last year i did a lot for gondola this time i think i'm just going to taronga and up to matakana and doing an event in auckland um in the next few weeks but not as much because i think i've got another book coming out this time next year don't want people to get sick of me yes (laughs) there she is again hogging the library Uh, (laughs) so yeah I'll probably do a little bit more next year and it is great to do those events and go out and meet people and I wouldn't say I was a natural one for public speaking because writers tend to be quite solitary people but once I'm kind of up and going I can do it and um, yeah it's usually lots of fun generally I demand prosecco or a glass of nice Italian wine to be served to my guests
1: (laughs) Um, any thoughts about getting into the American market? Your, your books aren't sold in America at the moment, are they? Or are they?
2: No, I, I think they are available. They're sort of distributed through a few limited channels. But, no, I haven't got an, an American publisher. I don't know how you do that, honestly. I don't. I mean, I think it's really hard. Yeah. So, I mean, I would love the books to be translated into more languages. That varies, you know, Um my Dutch publishers who've taken all my books didn't take Gondola because they didn't like the, what they called the change of tone, which I ah. think must mean the middle-aged woman. I don't know. So, um, and I just don't know, I, I've, I've tried a couple of avenues and it's never happened. And I suppose in the end, you kind of have to put your energy into writing the book and trust other people are going to get on with the selling it. That's the point of having a you know, a publishing skill yes. rather than yes. self-publishing and being the one that does all the work. So, And I'd love a movie. I, I Someday I might attempt to write a movie script of one of my own books because it seems like my best chance of getting a movie made. And particularly the Sicily book, which takes place in one place over the course of a week, I think it would just make such a great movie.
1: Yes, and when they say that they're looking, you know, Netflix is hungrily hoovering up content of all sorts. I mean, you could even imagine that it could turn into a TV series, you know, yeah. that several of your books, but all tied together under one theme. You you could see that happening it very very easily as a as a Netflix series. So yeah, we'll. Wouldn't that be nice? We'll put up an <laughs> arrow prayer for you. <laughs> My you, Jenny. I'm awful. Awesome. <laughs> oh look, Nikki, it's been great talking. It really has. Um, thank you so much for your time and all the best with this new departure for you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on your show. Thanks. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading.
1: The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes he's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter I think you'd agree that his voice is both lighthearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.